welcome to the TechLink Health Podcast, an on-demand source for the top-trending healthcare topics and insights, delivered by key opinion and emerging leaders and as featured on the TechLink Health app. The healthcare industry is rapidly evolving, so our goal is to connect listeners to the most relevant insights, ranging from digital health to financial well-being to interesting side gigs. For more details, visit www.techlink.health. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the TechLink Health Podcast. I'm Margarita Hoosh, founder and CEO of MK Medical Solutions, and I'll be co-hosting this episode with Dr. Rodney Saman. Today's episode focuses on the role microbiology plays in the broader healthcare ecosystem and how it will continue to evolve in shaping the future of health. This episode's guest is Dr. Sarah Young, a scientific director of clinical microbiology for the Children's Hospital Colorado. Previously, Dr. Young has served as a fellow with the Mayo Clinic and special volunteer with the National Institutes of Health. She has a PhD in molecular microbiology from the Tufts University School of Medicine, a master's in biology from American University, in addition to a bachelor's in chemistry from the University of Maryland. It goes without saying that Dr. Young is accomplished, and we're excited to get her perspective on the future of healthcare. So, without further delay, we're excited to welcome Dr. Young to the podcast. Dr. Young, Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. To start and give our listeners some background, can you take a moment to introduce yourself in a bit more detail and tell us about your journey in the clinical microbiology? Sure. So I've had an interest in infectious diseases since I was pretty young. It started in middle school when I chose to read a book about Ryan White for summer reading. And Ryan White is someone who was, as a child, he was diagnosed with AIDS in the 1980s after he needed some blood transfusions for his hemophilia. He died about six years later, and Congress has since passed legislation in his name, and it made federal funding available for low-income, uninsured people to help with their HIV treatment. Fast forward a few years later, in college... I studied abroad in Western Europe, and I took a class called HIV and AIDS in Western Europe. I got to study in four different countries, including the UK, Spain, Netherlands, and Denmark. And I got to learn about how they approach the prevention and treatment of HIV, as well as learn about their healthcare systems, which was pretty fascinating. I also got to write a thesis paper at the end of college about microbicides, which are compounds that can be applied to the inside of the vagina or the rectum to protect against sexually transmitted infections, specifically HIV. And it's been developed over years and it's particularly useful in low resource parts of the world. And it's sometimes referred to as topical PrEP and PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So fast forward a few years, I was getting my PhD in microbiology at Tufts. And I started listening to this podcast called This Week in Microbiology, and I would listen to it while I was on the T on my way to the lab. One of the episodes featured a clinical microbiology director 
she's now a former director at Stanford, who chatted about working in clinical microbiology and how one could become a lab director after getting their PhD. And it's through a fellowship through the American Society for Microbiology. So I looked into these fellowships and I was very fortunate to land a fellowship position at Mayo Clinic. And there I got to learn about how different infectious diseases that are seen worldwide, how they present in a human host and how to diagnose such infections. At Mayo, I was exposed to an amazing spectrum of diseases. And then right at the end of fellowship, I took a board exam, which is the American Board of Medical Microbiology, and landed a fantastic position as a scientific director at Children's Colorado, where I've been since August of 2019. And I have to be honest, <laughs> now that I'm here, it's been quite a year and change. I had been a director for about a little over six months um, which was when the pandemic started. So it's been quite the uh, almost two years. And this is Dr. Saman. I had a question for you. So based on your background, it seems that much of your efforts are with clinical establishments. How does your role integrate and create synergies with other aspects of clinical operations? Sure. So the micro lab, which is the clinical microbiology lab at Children's Colorado. So I might refer to it as the micro lab. We work pretty closely with a number of clinical groups. It's part of our job. And it's wonderful to work in a pediatric academic center so you can kind of get that collaborative effort. Monday through Friday, I host rounds for about 30 minutes and a variety of clinical groups join, mainly infectious diseases. There are two clinical teams that are on service every week. There's also antimicrobial stewardship, epidemiology, and of course, the micro lab. And it's quite an engaging group. We talk about complex medical cases, and we've even discovered some quite amazing outbreaks. So in 2009, there was a bacillus serious hospital outbreak, and it was from contaminated alcohol preps. And then we were able to track it all the way down to where these alcohol preps were being produced. And it actually led to a national recall. We also look and discuss intermittent hospital and community outbreaks like norovirus. And we also have some experts in enterovirus D68, and it's linked to acute flaccid myelitis in children. And sprinkled throughout these rounds are also some educational pearls. So we can talk about unique organisms that we see in the lab, and we even talk about worms. So in fact, I showed a video this morning to the rounds of a worm being attacked by one of the host immune cells called eosinophils. And so they're known to attack and keep worm infections under control. As people were sort of departing and leaving for the day for rounds, I just left that video on loop and I told everyone, have a great Thursday. So sometimes things can be heavy and we can have hard times. But one thing that I really do enjoy about rounds, not only of the collaboration, but just how human we can be and how trusting we are with each other. And I think just having those rounds and feeling comfortable in a hospital setting with such clinical groups really fosters a trusting relationship. And it can lead to optimal patient care just because we work so well together. As a lab director, I work closely with a bunch of providers because part of my role as a lab director is to consult with other providers to help them determine what tests to order for diagnosing unique infections. I also have to talk about turnaround time because that's important as well. 
And also when results do come back and they're complex, how do we interpret these results to a meaningful, actionable response for the patient? And circling back, there are a spectrum of technologies and diagnostic methods out there. So it's my job to help the clinicians understand these methods and why we perform the tests that we do, at least in our hospital, and why we don't have some technologies. And also, most importantly, what the results mean and how they can impact the patient. So with all of these establishments, there's quite a bit of education, which I really enjoy because after all, I did grow up in a family of educators where openness and communication are really powerful tools. I love what you just said. I think that really is a nice summary and I can tell uh, uh, you're a great clinician, even though you're, uh, you're, you're not a clinical provider, but you provide an immense amount of expertise to the clinical providers and it sounds like the students and residents and fellows. And I love what you said about trust and, and that engagement with the, with the whole team is, is really interesting. It's a really important uh, partnership. And I think it's quite valuable for us, especially as healthcare systems become all the more complex. And, you know, it seems like every hospital system has their intricacies. And so I feel very fortunate to be with this group so we can establish and foster these really good professional relationships and um, I really do think that that impacts uh, clinical care in a good way. Great insights. I couldn't agree more with your points on the community coming together. So given the current pandemic and the mobilization of the medical community, what role does microbiology play in detecting, monitoring, and controlling infectious diseases? How will this role continue to evolve in the future? In 2017, Bill Gates wrote about a few predictions for the future. And one of those predictions was that in the next 15 years, 33 million people could be wiped out in less than a single year by one pathogen. And looking back on this last year, he was pretty much on point, at least from the most recent totals. We haven't reached 33 million deaths due to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19 disease, but three and a quarter million deaths, which is probably an underestimate from the SARS-CoV-2 virus and its infection, it's not something that we should scoff at. And in the micro lab at Children's Colorado, we do work in the basement. And to be honest, we're quite happy with that. But since March of last year, we've been in the spotlight quite a bit. So I can tell you our story. When clinical labs were finally given the go-ahead to test for this virus, which is about early March of 2020, I was and I am proud that our lab was the first clinical lab in Colorado to have such testing available. We were able to get the test up and going in about two weeks, which is very quick for regulatory and supply reasons. And then although our supplies were limited, I'm sure you heard about all the testing supply shortages and all of the uh, drama involved with it. But yet we still offer testing for hospitals, especially in areas that were hit hardest in our state at first, which were the hospitals near the ski resorts. After all, that is a, a tourism place to be in the wintertime. Despite being in a time of high stress and anxiety, where there's so much we just didn't know, 
I'm honored to be part of both the micro lab and also just working for the hospital at Children's Colorado because it was a, a really an amazing group to, to work with. And anyway, fast forward a year and some in now May of 2021, we now have five different tests that can detect this virus's genetic material through a technique called polymerase chain reaction, commonly known as PCR. And so that will detect the virus and thus diagnose COVID-19 disease in individuals. So I hope that the success that the micro lab at Children's Colorado has had, I think my colleagues can also agree with this, that's shown that the to the medical community that as a whole, we're at your service. We wanna give you the most accurate and best tests and testing to diagnose an infection, whether that be for a pandemic or for new uh, technological approaches. And as for the role of micro for controlling infectious diseases, the term is knowledge is power. One topic that we cover a lot on this podcast is the rise of precision medicine and the importance of this discipline in shaping the future of health and well-being. Along those lines, what's your perspective on microbial genomics and how will this align with the future of precision medicine? Okay, so what's called precision medicine is parallel to our term of next generation sequencing or NGS. And it's just a different way of thinking about that type of technology. So precision medicine, I will confess it's not my wheelhouse, but generally speaking, it's the study of human genomics to better understand genetic abnormalities or possibly potential oncologic processes. So in microbiology, Next generation, next generation sequencing or NGS, it can be used on a sample type where you take a patient sample, you remove the human material and any sort of inhibitors as much as you can. And then you sort of look down from above and you just ask, well, what's there now? And that's from a microbial identification standpoint. NGS is a little less complex if we talk about a sample that is normally sterile. So let's say a kid comes in with what is suspected to be a tissue infection. So of course you want to send a sample of tissue to the lab so we can grow the organism up if it's present in culture, and then we can perform susceptibilities on that organism to determine what sort of treatment is best for that organism. But let's say it's a tricky organism and let's say it can't grow in culture or more commonly, let's say the patient has already been on some antimicrobial treatment. And so maybe the organism can't really grow even though it's there just because it's been under the pressure of antibiotic therapy. What NGS can do is take that tissue sample, remove the human material and then look and see what organism might be there, if there is one. And so that's a way that NGS can be applied to clinical microbiology. One aspect of TechLink Health is to build a collaborative ecosystem between tech, technical innovators, healthcare experts, and practitioners. With this in mind, uh, what are some of the emerging technologies in microbiology? How will microbiology leverage technologies such as AI and machine learning? And what types of expertise are most in demand for startups and innovators in this space? 
I have a lot to say about this topic. So I'll first talk about automation. Over time, the lab is becoming more and more automated. And one of the best examples of that is automatic interfacing. So a sample will run on an instrument. And when that testing is done, the results will go directly into the patient medical record. And it will also have a comment and interpretation. And that way, without having any sort of technologist manipulation, we can reduce errors and it's faster. And taking that a step further, some of my colleagues have implemented what's called total lab automation for certain sample types, TLA for short. And this will take a sample, let's say urine, and the it's a robot. And so it will take the urine sample, it will plate it onto media, and it will take pictures of that plate every single day. And if it detects any sort of growth, it will then flash and it will alert a technologist to continue that workup, which includes looking at that plate, making sure that there are some colonies, and then trying to identify that using another technology, and then also performing susceptibility testing to determine what's the best therapeutic strategy for um, this particular patient. Hopefully, down the road, let's say in a few years or so, we hope that TLA will incorporate organism identification and susceptibility testing in that system. At the moment, that's still a manual step, but that's something to we look forward to in the future. So total lab automation is something that's quite cool, and we are very excited about it. It has some advantages and disadvantages to consider. So automation and TLA certainly simplify processes, but for TLA in particular, you do need to make sure that the sample types and the tube sizes, the collection uh, tubes, they need to be as standardized as possible for the instruments. And then also you have to make sure that we have sufficient sample. In pediatrics, that's a really tough thing to accomplish, especially, I mean, not especially, but even for urine, um, sometimes we only get a few drops of urine from a, a newborn. And so we haven't really been able to incorporate TLA into our lab just because of sample volume. And another variable too are actual sizes of these instruments. So total lab automation is actually gigantic. So we always look at the specs or specifications of the instrument. We wanna make sure that we have enough electricity in an out outlet for the instrument to run. We also wanna make sure that that instrument doesn't interfere with any other technologies or instruments in the lab. So outside of TLA and automated in interfacing, I do want to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I think these are avenues that are worth exploring down the road. So for example, I read a really cool study from a few years ago out of Beth Israel, where the group taught a computer how to read a Gramstein. So Gramstein is a classic microbiology technique where you take a stain and it will look for um, bacteria. And some bacteria are known as gram positive. So you can think of Staph aureus or Streptococcus pneumoniae or gram negative. Gram, some classic gram negatives are E. coli and Pseudomonas. And so essentially this group was able to teach the computer how to read a gram stain and how to interpret it, whether there aren't any organisms there, 
or if there are organisms, were they gram positive, were they gram negative, were they mixed? And so the paper in the study was really cool. And I think it's a good starting point, but I think there's a lot of work that goes into it before we can implement that clinically. After all, the lab in a hospital is the most regulated entity in a, in a hospital. So we have to make sure that these new technologies will succeed. Now, as we're working with startups and innovators, I would say absolutely. My colleagues and I are completely open to it. As a matter of fact, when I was a fellow, a new director and I chatted quite a bit. And one of the best pieces of advice she gave me was to work with startups and work with innovative technologies. Um, essentially, just work with industry because you never know what sort of things um, you can discover and what sort of new advances you can be ahead of the curve with. And so when we look for an instrument or technology, when we bring them into the lab, we want to make sure that the instrument is sturdy and it runs smoothly, that it doesn't take up too much room, that it can be understood well by technologists in the lab. We don't want to manipulate too much of the samples in the lab, so minimal manipulation would be nice, and minimal maintenance. We want to make sure that the results can be interfaced, that the results can be interpreted correctly by the provider. And of course, I know I haven't talked about cost as well, but that's another big variable um, when looking for new technologies and how they can be implemented in the clinical microbiology space. I think you answered the question about healthcare costs, but along those lines, I guess the issue in healthcare is you guys probably use Epic there as well. I think the CEO of Epic was asked this question once, uh, why healthcare is so expensive? And she, her response was, well, yeah, every year you have layers of new technology on top of layers of new therapies and medicines and tests. And so we have all these new gadgets and tests, but I like your point about uh, keeping it simple because uh, I think that's the problem with healthcare is the all these layers don't always amount to better care. And then maybe there's some old therapies or tests that we need to sort of clean out or use more often. I think that's where the precision medicine helps too. Certainly. As we have new technologies and we have these complex medical record systems, um, one thing that's really important to us, and I believe the Children's Colorado Hospital System is value-based care. And I think that that is one approach that we can consider to help reduce costs of healthcare. And so there's a few variables. Um, the first one is from a clinical microbiology side is there's this point of care technology. And so that's diagnostics at the bedside to diagnose urgent infections. So in pediatrics, a great example is getting the fast diagnosis of a streptococcus pyogenes infection. It's also known as group A strep or gas. So if this type of infection is not diagnosed fast enough in children, it can lead to really serious consequences. And so that's invasive cellulitis, even streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. And in these instances, time is of essence and value-based care is really focused on a rapid diagnosis. And that will save time that a patient is admitted 
And it also, if you get a fast diagnosis, it can offer appropriate treatment considerations in a timely manner. And sort of tying back in, one of the teams that we work closely with is the antimicrobial stewardship group. We have a really great group here at the hospital. And if they see and are alerted to a group A strep infection, they can hone in and um, focus on what's the right treatment method and what they should do to ensure that each patient if on, is on the correct antimicrobial. Another value-based care variable that's quite near and dear to me is diagnostic stewardship. And we were just talking about how complex uh, the American healthcare system has been, and I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why I want to plug, have a plug for clinical microbiologists because we're trained to help guide clinicians in the right path. So let's say a child presents to the hospital with a fever and cough. These days, the first thing we think of is, does the patient have COVID-19 disease? And so we should test for SARS-CoV-2. But what if that patient is immunocompromised and doesn't have a normal, robust immune system? And what if the patient's admitted in the hospital? In these instances, a variety of pathogens can have such a clinical presentation and there are treatment and quarantine considerations. So we have these respiratory panels that can detect multiple organisms at a single time. And that's a great test for the right patient. Um, but not all patients need such a test. And for most cases, determining if a patient has COVID-19 disease or not may be sufficient. So it's a kind of a fine balance between, and it's a difficult question to answer, to determine what test is right for the particular patient in their clinical presence. And the third variable of value-based care is part we collaborate quite a bit here at this hospital between rounds and between our continual communication between the ID teams, infectious diseases teams, and the lab. And so diagnosing an infection involves a multidisciplinary team. And all in all, it's a partnership. Granted, what we just talked about was about simplifying, um, but sometimes if we do have multiple groups working together, sometimes that partnership also helps with decreasing costs through value-based care. So fascinating. Thank you so much for taking us on this journey of learning more about the role of microbiology in the broader healthcare ecosystem. Well, I want to be respectful of your time so in closing, any final insights for those interested in staying connected to the next wave of innovation within healthcare? Sure. I have a few final comments. Um, first, just looping everything together, clinical diagnostics is a fine balance of getting an answer or answers as soon as possible, which includes incorporating automation. You do want to offer the provider the right information, and you want to make sure that the test and its result make sense for the patient. And you also want to make sure from a lab side that there are sustainable workflows and space for the laboratories to work. So we should have an open communication and good trust between the laboratory and the providers. And while I'm biased, infectious diseases are just fascinating. And I think microbes might be just a little smarter than us. 
And I want to just keep the conversation open for future innovations and let's be honest, future bugs that might come um, in front of us. In the micro lab, there are no two days that are the same, and it's really never a dull day at my job and in the clinical micro lab. Well, thank you so much. That was excellent. Do you have any final predictions in terms of COVID-19 and when we'll reach herd immunity? It's going to take a while. Um, I, as much as, as optimistic as I'd like to be, um, I'm not sure if we will necessarily reach herd immunity. There are thoughts that the SARS-CoV-2 virus will become a respiratory virus that circulates with influenza and in children, RSV. Um, and it so far kind of points in that direction. However, I am very optimistic about the power of vaccination and any sort of prevention method that we can sort of come up with. And so um, in the meantime, uh, until we do reach that certain threshold, I think this virus will continue to be with us. I agree with you. I always think it's interesting also how uh, influenza is just kind of non-existent right now. And even though they're both viruses and both sort of respiratory, one took over the other in terms of its infectious uh, capabilities. It really did. This So the respiratory season usually lasts from, or usually starts around end of October, maybe early November, and it goes through April. And at least here at Children's, we have not seen a single influenza case. It's amazing. And um, also, we've seen some really fascinating trends. And so we do have that respiratory panel. And so one thing that we've seen is rhinovirus or enterovirus. They're hardy. Even with all the masks and even with like social distancing, viruses sort of stick with us through this last weird respiratory season. And what's interesting too is the Southern Hemisphere, like in Australia, they did note that there was a later RSV season. And sure enough, a couple of weeks ago, some of my colleagues in the South started reporting an uptick in RSV cases. And um, that might be the case here as well, but we'll see. So it's just been a really interesting respiratory season. And so it will be fascinating to see how other respiratory seasons pan out in the future. Very interesting. Thank you so much for the incredible insights. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Young. Thank you. Of course, thank you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. TechLink Health is a healthcare advisory platform for consumers and organizations to stay informed with the latest insights while connecting with healthcare experts for telehealth, e-consults, and consulting services. For more details, visit www.techlink.health.